Thanks, Kayla. Apologies if my voice is a bit hoarse this morning. I went to see Spurs Brighton last night with Elia, and it was her first Spurs game. And I've realized taking somebody else, taking anyone else to a Spurs game, it's probably time I choose a new team. She, um, it, this was possibly the best Spurs game I've ever been to because they won, partly. Um, it doesn't matter how you win. One was an own goal. One was a mistake from Brighton. The last one kind of got bundled in. Don't know how it went in, but I've never celebrated so much in my life. Anyway, we get back and I think I've treated Elia to possibly the best game of football she'll ever watch in her life, particularly if she chooses to support Spurs, which of course she will. And then I woke up the next morning and she comes running in to her now. She says, mummy, mummy, guess what? Guess what? Daddy jumped up and down so hard, his phone fell out of his pocket and it smashed on the floor. And that's all she could remember about the game, <clears throat> which says it all, doesn't it? If you were here last week, you'll know that we are in the middle of a series. We've just started a series in the book of James. James is in the Bible. It's written by a bloke called James who happens to be Jesus' little brother. And if you were to sum up the theme of James, we've had a go and we want to call this series a little less conversation, a little more action. Oh, look at that. There we go. A little less conversation, a little more action. Elvis, if in case you don't know, if you were born in the last 10 years. And uh, the reason we are calling it that is because if, when we read, and we'll go through it week by week, what you'll realise very quickly is that James is all about putting our faith into action. What does it look like to put our faith into action? What are we supposed to be doing with our time and with our energy? And the verse today that was read by Kayla that really just sums up the whole of the book of James and really the whole of this series is verse 22 where James says do not merely listen to the word and therefore deceive yourselves don't merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves instead do what it says don't just listen deceive yourselves instead do what if you want a summary of the book of James it's there in verse 22. Do what it says. Now, there's a couple of questions we have to ask of that verse. Firstly, what are we supposed to be doing? What is the word? And what is this whole thing about anyway? So let's just start. This is why I've included verse 18. Let's start with verse 18 then. I'm going to read this. It will come up on the screen. It says this in verse 18. It was actually in our reading last week. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might become, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So in that verse, we find out who he is writing to. So when he says, don't just listen, do what it says, he's writing to Christians. How do we know that? It's because he's talking about those who have been born again of the Spirit. That's the context, the verse 18, the verse 19 that we've just read. What does it mean to be born again? Well, it is as simple as believing and trusting in Jesus and therefore turning in the opposite direction and living your life for him. What do we mean by that? Well, we're doing this at the life course at the moment. If any of you are coming on the life course, you'll know that we're setting up this three-part problem of the problem of Jesus. Problem number one is if God were to make himself in flesh, if God were to become human, don't you think he might look a little bit like Jesus? In other words, Jesus claims to be God in flesh. And in fact, you can't take Jesus as a simple 
simply as a moral teacher. Many people do in our world today. They just think he's got some good things to say about tolerance and caring for people. We can't take Jesus like that because when you read the Gospels, you realize very quickly, Jesus isn't just saying nice things. He's claiming to be God. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. So the first thing we need to believe is that Jesus is God. second thing we need to believe is that he rose from the dead. Now, we're going to consider that on Wednesday at the Life Course. There is overwhelming evidence beyond reasonable. One of the main reasons a lot of Jesus rose from the dead. And if you've never looked into that, please do look into that. There's one of the main reasons a lot of people become Christians. They start to look into the evidence of the resurrection and they realise it's true. And if the resurrection is true, then the rest of it must be true. We have to start to address and look at the other claims of Jesus. Third thing we have to believe is that when Jesus died on the cross, the meaning that he attributed to that is true for us. In other words, when he died on the cross, Jesus Jesus essentially tells his disciples when he comes back for the dead that he took upon himself all of our sin, everything that separates us from the Father, everything that destroys the world, everything that destroys ourselves, and he forgives us of it and he destroys the power of it over our lives and he offers us new life. So what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be a Christian? It means you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It means that you believe that the resurrection actually happened. And it means that when you believe that when he died on the cross, he took away the sin of the world, including our sin. It's what we've just been celebrating in communion. And uh, James says that's a little bit like a new birth. It's a little bit like being born again. That's what baptism is all about, isn't it? You go under the water, you die to your old life without Jesus at the centre. You come up, you're washed clean by the blood of Jesus, symbolised by the water. And instead you live your life, new birth in him. You become a follower of Jesus. So he's talking to Christians here. What does that mean? It means if you're here and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, please don't worry about anything I'm about to say say. You don't need to worry about it. In fact, if you want to use your time wisely, why don't you think to yourself, who do I think Jesus is? And the reason this is quite fun to do with the book of James is because James was Jesus' little brother. He wasn't convinced that Jesus was Lord. In fact, when we read in the Gospels, James came to take away his brother and tell him, I think you're, you've gone absolutely barmy. You're mad. We need to go and lock you up because you've gone nutty. So James went on this journey. What made him believe in Jesus as the Son of God, the resurrection? He saw Jesus. These guys are witnesses. These guys don't just believe in the resurrection. These guys saw the resurrection. That's why it's so important to look. Do we believe beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus rose from the dead? That's what it means to be born again. So if you're not born again, if you don't consider yourself, don't worry about it. Just think about what you think and who you think Jesus is. You can come on Wednesday if you like. And we've got the life course and we're doing the resurrection. Evidence for this week. For us who do follow Jesus here this morning online and in the room, This doesn't mean that if you don't do the word, you're not a Christian. There's something in the Bible called salvation sanctification. And here right at the outset, I just want to lift the pressure of you. Anything that I say this morning does not mean that if you don't do it, you don't have a connection with the Father. Here's the beauty of what we've just celebrated during communion. You can return to the Father in an instant, in a moment. How? Ask him to forgive you. His arms are always open wide. We can turn back to him in an instant in his grace. We don't have to work in order to be able to receive the love of Christ. That is the point of grace. It's the central theme of the gospel. So please don't hear anything I say this morning as commands that we have to do so that we can be in relationship with God. That is what other religions teach. It is completely the opposite to what Christianity teaches. We believe in grace. We believe that salvation is a gift. However... 
This is what James is saying. It's all very well listening to that sort of thing. It's all very well believing that. But if it has no consequence in how we act and how we live our lives and what we do, you probably have to question if you've got it in the first place. So what does it mean when he says the word of truth? Well, by the word of truth, he's talking about the Bible. So he's talking about the scripture. So verse 25, he says it a little bit more explicitly there. He says the perfect law. What's he referring to? He's referring to the whole of the Old Testament. Now, as Christians, often we like to think that we can just do away with the Old Testament, just read the words of Jesus and the New Testament. In fact, let's scrap the rest of the letters. Let's just do the words of Jesus. The problem with Jesus is that he spends 10% of his speech, his time, quoting the Old Testament. And when he quotes the Old Testament, he is... He's quoting it as though it's words from God, as though it's revelation. Okay, so what about his words? Well, he says that when he speaks, it's a direct revelation from the Father. So we better include the words of Jesus. What about the words of the apostles, Acts and the letters? Well, what we find out is that when Jesus rose from the dead, before he ascended into heaven, he started teaching the disciples what it means that he died on the cross and he rose again. And so therefore, we include the words of the apostles, those who witnessed the resurrection, those who saw the risen Jesus. And so that makes up Acts and the letters. Was it put together by a bunch of old men many, many years later because they wanted to control the people? Absolutely not. These letters that we have in the Bible, Acts and the rest of the letters right through to Revelation, were considered as part of Scripture by the entire church at the time. All they did when they put the council together to decide what was going to be in the canon, if you like, in the Bible, was they affirmed what was already happening in the churches, that these letters were clearly the Word of God. So what does he mean when he says, Word of grace? He means the Bible. He means everything that we've got written in there. We'll come back to that in a second. What else does he mean? He means Jesus. Logos. Word become flesh, as written in John 1. Because as you read this as the Word of God, what you quickly realise is that the whole of the Old Testament is about Jesus. The Gospels are only about Jesus. And the whole of the rest of the New Testament is about what Jesus has done on the cross and his resurrection. So really, when we say you've been given birth through the word of truth, we're talking about the person of Jesus. So it's that change when we become Christians. It's a change in our heart and it's a change in our mind. Some of you would have had the heart change before the mind change. Absolutely fine. You experience the love of Jesus and then you start to rationalise it and think about it. Some of you more rational will have the, the head change before the mind change, before you have the heart change. You start to work out evidence of the resurrection, for example. And you're like, there's something in this and then you experience the love of the heart. It doesn't matter which order you do it. The point is, if you've been born again, if you're a Christian, it means you've had a change in your heart and a change in your mind about who Jesus is and as a result you've chosen to believe in him and to trust in him and to follow him so given birth through the word of truth we're talking about the whole of the bible and we're talking about the person of Jesus what is the implication of this now this is where we get into the application with James 1 this morning the implication of this is that we might be uh, verse 18 a kind of first fruits of all he created first fruits of all he created. What does first fruits mean? Well, we don't know this because we're not farmers and we weren't in first century Jewish context. But in a first century Jewish context, the first fruits was essentially the first harvest that farmers would put aside and give to God. So they weren't allowed to sell it. They weren't allowed to eat it. Instead, they were to put it aside and they would say, this belongs to you, God. And then they would take the rest of the harvest and they would eat it and they would sell it and they would live on it. So when James is saying that we have been given birth through the word of truth so that we might be a first fruit 
Essentially what he's saying is you no longer belong to anyone else other than God. You belong to God. When you've been given birth by the fruit of the gospel and you believe and trust in him, we now belong to him. Which also means that we don't any longer get to do whatever we want with our life. Instead, we're to follow him. Now, let's just state the obvious at the outset. We hate this idea. We absolutely hate this. I don't know if you feel it, the discomfort of that. When people talk about obeying or obedience or commands or law, something inside you starts to think, oh, this is uncomfortable. It's because we hate it. Why do we hate it? It's because our culture hates it. In fact, I would say humanity throughout the ages has hated this idea. Why? Because the prevailing mantra of the culture is be yourself and do whatever makes you happy. Be yourself, do whatever makes you happy. Moral absolutes are dirty. Truth is relative. And to be honest, we don't really believe that, do we? Because we have laws. But the beauty of law is we can change and adapt it over time so that it becomes more tolerable to the culture in which it is used. And so therefore, the idea of obeying something or someone outside of our own self, out there, particularly something that's eternal, is dirty and it feels deeply uncomfortable. And then we panic even more when we realise we're talking about the Bible here. We're talking about words that were written thousands of years ago. Surely it's out of date by now. Surely we don't need to listen to it in any way whatsoever. So much of it is primitive. It's wrong. How could you possibly be saying that to become a Christian and to give your life to Jesus as the first fruit of creation means that you belong to him so therefore you follow the word? Doesn't make sense in our 21st century context and ears and understanding, does it? Well, there's a couple of things I'd like to say for that. First thing I'd like to say is it doesn't always say what you think it says. There's something we have to do with this book called interpretation. There's something that we have to do in order to be able to understand who it was written to, what genre it's being written in, and what exactly it's saying to us now, 2000 or however many years later. For example, Abraham had two wives. Does that mean that God wants us to practice polygamy? No, surely not. None of us believe that. Why? Because that was narrative. It doesn't mean that Abraham is the perfect representation of what it means to follow God. Abraham also lied and he stole. He did many other things that we don't think is a good thing to do. And God doesn't think it's a good thing to do. The point is this narrative, you have to interpret it. We have to actually do a little bit of work as we read it. However, even if we do that, there's still going to be bits that you disagree with. There's still going to be bits that I disagree with. And do you know why that is? It's because both you and I aren't God. We're products of our own culture We're products of our own upbringing. We're products of our own experience. What does that mean? That means that when we come across stuff in here that we believe is the word of God is eternal and we apply it correctly, so we do the proper interpretation, there is still going to be stuff that is offensive to our culture and offensive to us and hard for us to live out and do. And I think this kind of makes sense. And this is kind of the way I find it helpful to reason and to get my head around. There are things in the Bible that would have been offensive to people 2,000 years ago. Take, for example, a time in which many, many years, thousands of years, hundreds of years ago probably, family and honour were central to everything in society. So it was the most important thing, family and honour and protecting that. Okay, We don't live, we're, we're incredibly isolated these days. We live quite fractured lives, but hundreds of years ago, 100 years ago even, family and honour would have been deeply, deeply, deeply important. Therefore, when the Bible, which it does say, when the Bible says sex is for inside marriage, it's not for outside marriage, a hundred years ago, they would say, that makes perfect sense. 
absolute sense. Don't, it's not offensive to me whatsoever. 21st century context, deeply offensive. We find it incredibly hard to work out. However, hundreds of years before that, right, where families would have seen loved ones being brutalized and murdered before their own eyes, when it says in here that no matter what somebody does to you, you need to forgive them, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they said, there is no way I'm ever going to forgive somebody who's killed a family member. That is deeply offensive to me and I'm not going to forgive. Fast forward 21st century us, we find forgiveness is quite a good idea. We find it harder to do, but in general, we probably agree that forgiveness is a good idea. The point is, there's going to be stuff in here that offends cultures over different periods of time, and it makes sense, right? Otherwise, who would be God? God wouldn't be God. We would be God. Whatever the prevailing culture says is God or right or wrong would be God. And so therefore, we need to actually read it, understand it, but we also need to realize there's going to be bits in it that we disagree with and we find difficult. And I think this makes sense. My daughter, Elia, bought some clothing, and on it it said, do whatever makes you happy. And I promise you, as soon as she bought that, I said, you need to throw that straight in the bin. That's the worst thing to have on your t-shirt. Most parents are laughing in the room, right? Because you know it. Do you want your kid to do whatever makes them happy? No. If Elia did whatever made her happy, she would eat chocolate all day and play on her iPad every second of the day. And she would. She got to bed at 11 last night. This morning, she's a mess, an absolute mess. She would go to bed at 11 every night if she could. You don't do whatever you want and whatever makes you happy. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Take a little example from the text, okay? In this text, he talks about anger and he talks about the tongue, okay? Anger in the tongue. Who has ever done something when they're angry that they've then gone on to regret quite quickly? Be honest. Who's ever said something that they've thought and then quite quickly they've realized that they regret what they've just said because it was in their head only? Thank you. I do it pretty much every day. I'm sure some of you do it way less than me. There's stuff in here that's universally true for all of us because we are made and created in the image and likeness of God. And here's what I want to say this morning. I think if we really understand this, we'll realize that this is true freedom, that this is real freedom. And we'll get to that in a second, but it's going to feel a bit uncomfortable, so I'm just pointing it out at the outset. So where should we start? If we say we are born again of God, if we've given our life to him, where do we start? Well, here's the key verse. If you get anything from this today, verse 22 is what I'm going for. It says this, do not merely listen to the word. Don't just listen to Jesus. Jesus is the word. Don't merely listen to it and so deceive yourselves. Instead, do what he says. Don't just listen to the word, do what he says. Let's just work a bit on that deception. So what's the deception there? Well, this is what the deception looks like. He explains it straight away. Verse 23 and 24, he says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at their face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he or she looks like. It's quite a strange thing to put, right? So you look, you look at yourself in the mirror, oh, there I am. Um, it's like the cheese. What, what, what did the cheese say when he looked at himself in the mirror? Halloumi. You look at yourself in the mirror and you see me. You see yourself. Okay? There's me. Look at what I look like. And then you walk away and you forget. Here's what he's saying. It's deeply profound. When you look at Jesus, when you listen to Jesus and you accept him and you, and you genuinely do the work of looking at Jesus eye to eye in the face, guess what? You find out who you are. You find out who you truly are. You find yourself. That's one of the main claims of Christianity. We are created to be in relationship with Jesus. So therefore, when we listen to him and we, we take upon ourselves his words, what he's saying to us, we find out who we truly are. Now, somebody who listens but then doesn't do what they're told is a little bit like somebody who looks in the mirror, finds out what they look like, and then goes away and totally forgets straight away. 
Here's an example. Um, and, and we've kind of mentioned this already with the tongue. Um, later on in chapter three, James is going to talk about the power of the tongue. And Andrew Twesterjay is going to talk about this. It's going to be absolutely brilliant. He's going to do a very good job of it. But he talks about the power of the tongue. Okay? And it talks about the hypocrisy. Because this is what he's talking about. It's hypocrisy, really. You find out who you are and then you forget who you are. You, you listen and agree with one thing, but then you do exactly the opposite. The tongue thing is that the tongue has exactly the same power to praise God, to give him glory, but then at the same time to curse people made in his image. What's James saying there? He's saying that when you work out, when you praise God, when you give glory to God with your tongue, you're you're proclaiming who he is. It's what we do in worship all the time. But then you go on to then curse somebody made in the image of God, because we're all made in the image and likeness of God. You are deceiving yourself. It's double standards. It's hypocrisy. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's stupid. It's like listening to it, but they're not doing what it says. What would be a more kind of, easier example for us to understand well um you listen to a podcast right and this happens all the time in fact I often speak and then someone will come up to me after the talk and they'll say I really love this bit that you said and I'm thinking in my brain I'm like I don't remember saying that at all it's absolutely no sense like I don't remember saying it but it's the thing that they got from it absolutely happens all of the time often when we listen to stuff all we really take is the stuff that we want to take when we watch a talk online, we all watch particular things online, particular preachers who say particular things in particular ways. Why? Because we kind of like the way they say it and it applies to us and it makes us feel better about ourselves. It's a little bit like the fact that when we do thematic, and I'm talking about me as a church leader here, when we work through the Bible in different themes and different books, we avoid most of it and we talk about the stuff that we want to talk about, that's easier to talk about. That's why in the Church of England, never thought I'd say this, there's a merit as you're going through the whole of the Bible, right? Week in, week out, that's the whole point of it because you're going to come up against stuff that you don't necessarily want to come up against but my point is when we listen to something we say this bit really spoke to me and here's why and often it's because it benefited me it made me feel better about myself but the bits that we often put away is that bit felt a bit uncomfortable or that bit I'm kind of I hear it but I'm not going to go on and do it and it's really hard to do but it's like looking at ourselves in the mirror finding out who we really are what we're made to do our purpose and then totally forgetting it a second later so that's the deception that happens so he says don't do that don't just listen to Jesus instead do what he says what does it look like to do what he says I think he spells it out here in James verse 27 okay says this religion and I hate the word religion because so often we've missed religion we think it's about rules in order to be able to attain uh, acceptance with God absolute nonsense not what we're talking about here he's just talking about good practice in relationship with God religion that our God our father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world What does it look like to not just listen to Jesus, but to do what he's telling us to do? First, holiness. Second, care for the poor. We don't talk about this a lot here. First, holiness. Second, care for the poor. You know what James is doing there? He's summarising pretty much the whole of the Old Testament. What do I mean by holiness? Holiness is just a religious word that means you set yourself apart for God that you realise that you are not a product. You do not belong to the world. You don't even belong to your own will. Instead, you belong to Jesus. And you're going to do what he's asking you to do. You set yourself. But there's a particular emphasis here that he's putting on in terms of moral purity. How do we know that? Well, he says it elsewhere, doesn't he? He says, um, keep oneself from being polluted. In verse 21, he says, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Okay, so he's talking about holiness here. There's no way of avoiding it. It's exactly what he means. It's what he's saying. Now, what does that look like personally? Personally, 
That looks like Galatians 5. We've read this a few times recently, but it says this. Here's what it, here's what it doesn't look like. Okay, this is the acts of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Acts of the flesh, he says they're obvious. This is the thing about this stuff. Often it's obvious. It's obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discourse, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orders and the like. If you listen to Jesus but you don't do what he's telling you to do, you're going to find that sort of stuff is continually present in your life. In fact, probably what you'll find is you're caught in habitual cycles of that kind of stuff because you're not listening and obeying. Instead, what does it look like to listen and obey in terms of our character? Well, it looks like this. The fruit of the Spirit is different. It's love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no Law, really important there, what Paul is saying. We don't do this in the legalistic way. So you wake up in the morning and say, I really need to be more peaceful today, please. May I be more peaceful? And then you chastise yourself when you go and you get into an anxious situation, you feel anxious. Instead, it's fruits of the Spirit. I talked about this last week. How do we, get, how do we grow as fruits of the Spirit? We attach ourselves to the vine. Who's the vine? It's Jesus. We look at Jesus in the eyes, we find out who we are and we find that the fruit grows. But there is an active way in which we participate in that. That's why he's not just talking about listening and hearing alone. He's talking about walking it out and do it. So what does it look like to do what Jesus is saying? Firstly, there's going to be evidence in your own life of holiness. Does that mean that we're going to be perfect all the time? Absolutely not. Does that mean that we're going to try and solve everything at once? Absolutely not. You'll find as you read this, God will talk about specific things at specific times and that there will be a measure of healing and advancement in it in terms of your own life. And then you'll come back to it later on and he'll look at specific things. And there'll be just, it'll just be like this constant growing. It's what they're talking about when they talk about sanctification, which is just a fancy word for saying becoming more like Jesus. It's a process. It's not something that happens like that. It's something we engage with in a process. So there's going to be evidence of becoming Lord Jesus, but not just personally, also in terms of our church family. A church that doesn't just listen to Jesus, the word of God, is a, is, and a church that does it, is a church that's going to be good at holiness. What do we mean by that? It's going to be good at discipleship, essentially. It's going to be good at helping each other become like Jesus, helping each other become the people that we were created to be. Can I just say at the outset, we've been terrible at this. We're awful at this. This was an event pre-pandemic. All we really cared about was what happened on stage on a Sunday and whether we had enough people in the room. The revelation that we've had over lockdown, and this is a revelation many churches have had, but it's a revelation that actually we didn't do much to help people become more like Jesus or even help help other people become more like Jesus because we were so focused on the event. That's why we've got this new value, every day, not an event. It's about discipleship. It's about helping each other continually walk and become more like Jesus. So it's both personal and it's corporate. We need to do it at the same time. The other evidence that we're not just listening, but we're doing is that we care for the poor. We care for the poor. Look after the orphans and the widows. Who are the orphans and the widows? They're people in society who are worthless. Orphans, not got no parents. Kids at the time were property of their parents. So if you lose your parents, you're worthless. You've got nothing. You're helpless. Widows, in the first century Jewish context, if, if, you, if you lost your husband, you became worthless. You weren't worth anything. And so therefore, James is saying there, if you want to be doers of the word, not just listeners of the word, you need to look after the lowest of the low. You need to look after those who are in trouble. You need to look after those who are in poor. You need to look after the orphan and the widow. Who's the equivalent of the orphan and the widow in our time? What does this look like personally? It looks like our relationships in our life aren't simply 
in place because we get something out of them. And this is quite challenging. It's challenging for me. Think about your relationships in your life. Are you in those friendships and relationships because it's mutual, because you get something out of it, because it helps you? Do you have any relationships in your life where it is purely about the other person? It's purely about helping them, caring for them. It's worth thinking about, isn't it? Corporately as well as a church, pre-pandemic, we did, we did a bit in terms of caring for the poor in our community, but really what happened in the pandemic was it kick-started a whole move of this in our church. We started having people knock on the door who couldn't feed themselves, and after we'd emptied our fridge a few times, we thought we'd better do something a bit more about this, and so we set up the food bank. And then Anne and a team over many years have got this thriving food bank here at St. St. Peter's, and there's many other things that have added onto it, and it's all about caring for the equivalent of the orphan and the widow at our time. So we need to be doing this personally and also corporately. It affects your own time in your own life, but it's going to affect what we do in church. And therefore, it will affect our money. It will affect our finances. There was a point during the pandemic where really we faced a choice. Do we stop the food bank or do we carry on doing what we're doing? Wait, that's not a choice. Do we carry on doing what we're doing and stop the food bank? Or do we stop some of the things we're doing and carry on with the food bank? And there was a bit, Lucy got a prophetic word from Amos 5, which was brutal, which is essentially, I hate all this stuff that you put on here because you're not caring for the poor. And so we decided to step out in faith and we carried it all on. And praise God, because of the generosity of this, uh, this church family, we're able to do both at the moment. But I think actually if it came down to it, we'd have to stop some of the other stuff because we have to be caring for If you want to know what it looks like to not just listen, to be doers of the word, to follow Jesus and actually live it out, you're going to be caring for the poor. You're going to care about personal holiness. So the challenge is, are, well, I guess firstly, are you even listening? Do you even listen? Are you even listening? And then if you are listening and hearing, are you doing anything about it? Are you doing anything with your time, your resources, your thoughts? Okay. That's quite overwhelming, isn't it? Anybody else feel a bit overwhelmed? I feel a bit overwhelmed. I mean, think about my kids, for example. I mean, they take up all of my time. I can't think of doing anything beyond what my kids need from me. It's overwhelming, isn't it? But here's the point. We do it in relationship with Jesus. And this is what I really want to focus on. I'm coming into land in a second. But the whole point of the way in which we engage and listen to what Jesus is doing is that it will speak to us at particular times for particular people. It will speak to particular things in our life that the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on to deal. It isn't that you just have to do it all at once. Because if we did that, we'd become overwhelmed very quickly and be incredibly difficult to do so where do I start where do we start if we want to not just be listeners of the word we want to be doers of the Lord where do we start well essentially we need to read our Bible here's verse 25 hang on that's Galatians here's verse 25 but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in all that they do. So what does it mean to read the Bible in the way that James is asking to read the Bible? Firstly, it means to look intently. Do you know the only other place where uh, that word for look intently is used? Uh, it's two other places actually in the Gospels. It's where Peter comes to the tomb and he finds the tomb em empty and we're told he looks intently into the tomb. And it's another place in, in a letter of Peter where Peter talks about the angels are jealous because they want to look intently into the Gospel. What's he saying there? Well, I imagine when Peter came to the tomb, he didn't just look in and go, oh, tomb's empty. And off he went. I think when Peter came to the tomb, he looked in and he went, oh my gosh, and his head's going like this, his brain's wearing, he's trying to work out what's going on, he's feeling all of these feelings, he's engaging with it, and the word literally means to lean in, he leans in. 
And he starts to think about what's going on here and the implications that it has on his life. When we read the Bible, we're to look intently on what we're reading. What does that mean? It means we lean in. And if you're anything like me, it means you read the passage four times before you get anything because you're too sleepy and you don't understand what it's saying. Look intently when we read the Bible. Essentially, find the resurrected Jesus. Find the life. Find what the resurrected Jesus is saying to you in that moment through what you're reading through the Word. Secondly, apply it to yourself. This is where the whole mirror comes in, okay? So when you do it, you see yourself in the mirror. Now, this is both bad and it's brilliant. Why is it bad? Because when you see yourself in the mirror, I don't know if you have this experience, but sometimes when you see yourself, you say, I look an absolute mess, absolute mess. And then and you just think, oh, I just feel horrible about that. When you read the Bible, sometimes it'll be looking like looking into the mirror and you see, here's all the things that are wrong in my life at the moment. Here's all the things that I'm struggling in my life at the moment. Here's the things where I don't match up to the perfect law. But here's the good news. Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus lived out the law perfectly. So that every time we read that kind of stuff, we say, but thank you, Jesus, that your grace is sufficient for me. That your Holy Spirit comes inside and transforms me to make me more into the image of Jesus. Look intently into it. Apply it to yourself. Ask Jesus what he's saying. Third thing, do what it says. Start to live it out. Let me give an example of that from me this week. On Wednesday, I'd got myself in a pickle with my, with my, just my diary and what I was doing. On Monday, I thought I had quite a good week. By Wednesday, I was at capacity. I was overwhelmed. And I couldn't get everything that I needed to get done, done. And Hanel and I look at our diaries together on the Monday. And I said, I'm pretty free this week. Anything you need me to do? And we were talking about it. And we, we agreed that I would go and get the Audi click and collect on Thursday morning. And we just agreed that. I mean, we talk about Audi a lot. You probably got this by now. It's pretty much the entirety of most of our conversations. And uh, even date night, this food's from Audi. Isn't this amazing food? Beautiful. Audi. Costs three pounds. Anyway, so I agreed to get the Audi swap. So as I'm going out, I'm stressed, I'm anxious. And Hanel says to me, don't forget you said that you picked the Audi order up. And I kid you not, I just slammed my fist on the sideboard by the door. And I said, I can't do it anymore. And she's like, oh my gosh, what's happened to you? And I promise I started crying. Some of you are thinking, this guy leads the church. Thank the Lord that he now leads the church with me. It's not just me. And there's others that lead the church. Hello, kids. I'm going to teach you guys how to pray. Can you come and sit down at the front? Here. We're going to do prayer with the kids this morning. Um, <clears throat> anyway, overwhelmed, right? And we've been married enough that we, need, that we know that we need to ask each other forgiveness when stuff like that happens. I've been married long enough to know that it's normally me that asks forgiveness. So I said to Hanel later, I'm sorry. And Hanel did the usual, which is what's actually going on, which is the question we should all be asking ourselves. Next morning, I wake up and I say, God, I really need, to, I need you to help me with my week. I feel overwhelmed. I'm anxious. I'm getting angry. How are you going to help me with me? And I opened my Bible and the passage I was on that, this, that morning was Hebrews 4. Now, in Hebrews 4, if ever you've read it, essentially the writer of Hebrews is talking about Sabbath rest okay here's what it looks like to look intently into a passage in the Bible I saw the word rest and I thought hmm I could really do with some rest I feel like I'm tired in fact I'm overwhelmed I'm angry and I'm upset and so I looked a little bit more into the passage what is the rest that the writer of Hebrews is talking about well interesting he's linking it to Sabbath rest in Genesis when God created the world and on the seventh day he rested think a little bit lean in think a little bit more about that how does God need to rest makes no sense that God needs to rest absolutely no sense was it God's God he doesn't get tired why does he need to rest what's he talking about there well he's actually if you look at the word rest in Genesis 1 he's saying he was satisfied gosh 
When else did God say that in the Bible? Jesus on the cross, it's finished. How does that apply to me right now? Stop trying to work it out yourself. Stop trying to do it in your own strength. Instead, rest in the finished work of the cross. See myself in the mirror. I've looked intently, seen myself in the mirror, and I've received the power of the Holy Spirit to transform and change me. The rest of my week went pretty well until I went to see Spurs. <clears throat> okay, um, final thing. What will it look like if we do this? We think that freedom is the absence of rules. A little bit like, it just doesn't make sense, okay? So a goldfish, kids, you'll love this. Goldfish in a bowl, right? And you look at the goldfish and you think, this goldfish needs freedom, right? And so we've got fish, some of you might. You grab the fish and you stick it out onto the counter. You're like, there we go, you're free. And what happens to the fish? It dies, doesn't it? Because it was made for the water, right? Here's what true freedom is. True freedom is knowing who you are and knowing what you're created to do. And that's what it means as we look intently into the Word of God. We find out who we are. We find out what we're created to do. And then we're truly free. Don't be sold the lie that freedom looks like the absence of any kind of moral absolutes or rules or anything out there that is only subject to the will of me, myself and I because all that does is it entraps us into our own emotions and feelings. And we know that is not a good place to be.